I'll be honest with you, I could not figure out who was singing harmony there for a second. And I thought, oh my goodness, Greg is really talented. I, where, where is that coming? Audra's not singing. Yeah, and then I looked over and Karen Best was singing from the front row. So the lights will come on in just a second, I think. Can we get the lights on? Yeah, thanks, Greg. Greg has a lot on his plate, so <laughs> well done. Thank you all very much. Thanks to our musicians for leading us this morning. It's good to sing Christmas carols, Christmas songs together, and to hear a couple of specials as well. Will you go and open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 2? That's where we'll be this morning. Everybody hear me okay? Good. Excellent. Perhaps in the last year or so, or almost at the end of 2021, which is just shocking, but perhaps you have heard someone reference the year 2020 by saying 2020 was 1918, 1929, and 1968 all rolled into one. Maybe you've heard them add other years in there as well. And of course, if you're not familiar with someone putting it that way, what they're saying was, in this year we had a pandemic, we had a, a terrible time financially, and we also had political unrest. And so they're trying to, to bring all of those together uh, in a unique way. And it is an interesting way to describe a year. And I actually think it's very vivid and it's very helpful when you hear it put that way. And the reason it's helpful, if you stop and think about it, is because we as human beings often make sense of things by picking up similarities, by comparing things, by, by drawing attention to patterns that we notice and that are there. And if you think about it, we do this in almost every other area of life, right? I mean, I'm a sports guy. I like to watch sports, almost whatever sport it might be. And when you hear, you know, commentators and announcers try to draw together a storyline regarding a, a big game, one of the things they do is they compare players to other players, or they compare seasons, or they say this stat matches this stat, and oh, what a coincidence, what a shock that these two things are happening at the same time and in the same way. We do this in politics, right? We say, whatever president it is, we'll say this president is like, he's a, a version of Ronald Reagan in this area, or he's like John F. Kennedy in this area, or whatever, whatever it is. We do that all the time to try to, to try to make sense of things and to try to understand the circumstances that are unfolding. Now, what are we doing when we make those comparisons? I would argue that in one sense, we're making and we're doing typology. We're picking up on patterns and similarities and we're using earlier events, events that we're familiar with and people we're familiar with to help us understand and make sense of current events, of later events and of people. Now, I used that word typology last week if you were with us. And if you, weren't, if you weren't, we'll try to make sense of it this morning. But I, I use that word, typology, to describe what Matthew is doing and what he's talking about in the early chapters of Matthew, of his gospel, related to the birth and the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
you can see the title of this short series we're doing is Fulfilled. And when Matthew uses that word fulfill in the early chapters of his gospel, he's often doing the same thing that we do. He's noticing earlier patterns and similarities in events and in people in the Old Testament types. And he's drawing attention to those and saying that those events find their, their culmination in the birth and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those events and those people, the similarities, help us to make sense of who Jesus is and what he will do. Now, when we typically do this in life, there's an element of, of accident to it, right? There's not, there's not a real reason to compare this person to this person, right? There's nothing behind that. It's just a pattern that we pick up on and that we notice. And there's no real reason to say this quarterback is like this quarterback, right? Or this president is like this president. We're just trying to make sense of it. But, but in the Bible, it's different because the biblical authors are under divine inspiration and they wrote their books. They intended for you and I to see these patterns because God, by divine providence, orchestrated history in such a way to bring these patterns out and to draw attention to these types so that we could understand who Jesus is and what he does. I would say that these patterns and these types are acts of revelation from God. He's revealing who he is and he's revealing who Christ is and what his ministry will be like by these patterns. And so, in some ways, to understand your Bible, you have to understand this that the Old Testament authors are writing this way and picking up on patterns, and the New Testament writers are reading the Old Testament this way. It's intended by the authors and by God to come across this way. God makes himself known through this way of reading your Bible. And so, when we get to these early chapters of Matthew and we see them filled with quotes of the Old Testament, and we see Matthew drawing attention to these Old Testament patterns and saying this is fulfilled now in Jesus, we're learning more than just that Jesus was promised in the Old Testament, right? And that's sometimes where it ends for us. We come to Christmas and we think, oh, this is awesome. Jesus' birth and his ministry was promised in the Old Testament. And that's true. It was predicted. And we'll see that today. But it's more than just it was predicted. We're learning who he would be, what type of a savior he would be, what type of ministry he would have. There's a richness to these accounts that we have to reckon with when we properly read the Old Testament and connect it to the New Testament. And so Matthew chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. And here's what we're going to see. The king who is God's son. I loved that all of our songs this morning had to do with Jesus as the king. And it's so important. We're going to talk about this on Christmas Eve at our Christmas Eve service. But it's so important that we remember this was the birth of the king. He's come. But it's the king who is God's son. And here's specifically what we're going to talk about. The three roles of Jesus Christ rooted in the Old Testament. They're revealed in this passage to us. The first one of these is he is the promised shepherd king. Verses 1 through 6. Now last week we saw the birth of Jesus described and we saw this connection back to the Old Testament in Matthew 1 verses 18 through 25, specifically verses 22 and 23 
where Matthew gives this fulfillment quotation from Isaiah, and we talked about all of that. And then Jesus is born, and you can see in verse 25, but he, but, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. This is talking about Joseph, and he called his name Jesus, which is what the angel told him to do. Now, let's look, after Jesus has been born, let's look at how chapter 2 begins. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, at this point, we don't know how much time has elapsed, right? We can make our best guess at this, probably a couple of years, maybe less time, But we see that he was born, and he was born during the days when Herod was king in Judea. Now, we're going to talk more about Herod. He is quite a character, and we'll get to him in a few minutes. But I want to focus on the other characters that we're introduced to in verse 2. It says, wise men, or maybe you have a little note in your margin that says magi. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know a lot about these guys The ESV calls them wise men. You have a note there that says magi, as I just said. We don't know who they are or where they're from. They come from the east. There's a lot of guesswork. They're probably Persian, Babylonian perhaps. But what we do know about them is that they are some sort of religious leaders and influencers in their culture. They are into astrology. They study the stars and they're some sort of priests in Persian or Babylonian culture. No doubt these individuals are very important leaders in their land. Now, let's just be clear here, all right? Despite the Christmas songs and the Christmas story that we typically hear, there's no real reason for us to limit this to three of them. There's no reason biblically to think there were three kings, right? Or three magi. There could have been, and a lot of times people think there were three because there's three gifts offered, and that makes sense, but there's not a biblical reason to say three. It could have been more than that, but regardless, they make their way to Jerusalem. Now, making the journey to Jerusalem during this time would have required quite a bit of effort. This is a long-term journey, weeks, months perhaps, maybe longer for them to get there. So why do they show up in Jerusalem? Look at verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, they show up in Jerusalem looking for a baby who has been born king of the Jews. And the point of the language here, it's interesting, and I want you to notice this, the point of the language here when they talk about him being born king of the Jews is that he was born into this position, right? It's not something that he sort of grasped for or usurped. He is the rightful heir to the throne. He's born the king. And that's quite a bit of contrast to the the king right now at this point in Judea, Herod, which we'll see in a few minutes. But they go to Jerusalem and they get there, they make their journey to Jerusalem by noticing a star that suddenly pops up and that rose up. And they see this star and so they head toward Jerusalem. Now, what about this star made them believe that the king of the Jews had been born? 
Scripture does not give us a lot of detail. It doesn't connect the dots for us. But there is a passage in the Old Testament that I think is a very strong possibility for what they would have read and what they would have known about, and then they connected it to the star coming up. There is a passage in the Old Testament that connects a star to the birth of Israel's Messiah. If you go all the way back, you don't have to turn there, but in the book of Numbers, there is this crazy individual named Balaam. He's quite a character. And Balaam gives a series of prophecies or of oracles that predict blessing on the nation of Israel, right? Balak in this story wants him to curse Israel, and he just can't do it. When he opens his mouth, he blesses Israel, and he predicts in these oracles a future king that will come and will reign. And in the last one of these oracles that he gives, talking about the future of Israel, he says this in Numbers 24. It's a little small, but I think you can see it. Talking about this future king, he says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. And so there's a good chance, we don't know for sure, that these religious priests, these leaders in their Persian or Babylonian community, somehow had gotten a scroll of the Torah, of the first five books, and they were studying this, and they came across this oracle, and they connected it to this star that had come up. Now, why did they make their way ultimately to Jerusalem? Look at what it says at the end of verse 2. His star rose, and we have come to worship him. That's why they're there. Now, that's one way to react to this news, right? This is one way that you respond to the news of a king that is going to be born, the rightful heir to the throne, a king who will exercise dominion. That's one way to react. The other way to react is in verse 3. Look here. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, let's talk about this guy Herod for a minute here. There are a couple of Herods in your New Testament. This is Herod the Great, and as you'll see later in our passage, he dies just a few years after that, after this. And there's another Herod that comes, his son, that ends up ruling and reigning, and he is around at the death of Jesus. Now, this is Herod the Great, and he came to the throne here in Judea in about 40 B.C., okay? So maybe 34, 35 years before this. So he's been reigning for quite a long time. Herod was a magnificent builder. Building a building was never easy, and at this time, it's even more difficult than it is now, right? None of the equipment is there. None of the skills that a lot of our guys have today to build were there. And so Herod is a great builder. This is what he's known for. He constructed or, or sort of redid the temple that was there and made it into this magnificent building. He built a seaport at Caesarea. 
And he built several fortresses named at least one of them after himself, which if you're going to build a fortress, why not name it after yourself? But if you've been to Israel, no doubt you have seen one of the things that Herod built. It's still standing. The Western Wall or the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem is something that Herod constructed. Now, beyond being a great builder, and this is really important for you to understand, Herod had 10 wives, 15 children, and he was very paranoid. He was paranoid that someone was going to try to take the throne from him. There's all kinds of crazy stories about Herod and his paranoia. But at one point, just to tell you one of them, he had two of his sons strangled and killed because he was afraid that there was a mutiny against him from these two sons. There was another one of his wives that he, his favorite wife out of the 10, I'll just tell you this real quick because I think it's funny and awful in the same way. Well, one of his wives, his favorite wife, he told his guard that if Herod was away, visiting Rome or doing business or whatever, and Herod was killed, they were to immediately kill her so that she would not end up with another man. That's how jealous and paranoid he was. And that is important background information because it it fits the profile of how he responds here. Verse 3 says that he was disturbed. He was troubled. He's very anxious about the potential of this king coming up. And he's anxious along with the rest of his leadership team, with those who were closest to him, with those who were depending on his authority and his leadership. And I think that's what it's talking about here when it says all Jerusalem with him. And so what does Herod do? He calls in the Jewish leaders and tries to figure out what's going on here. Look at verse 4. And he assembled and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod clearly does not know the Old Testament scriptures very well, even though he's been ruling in Israel for quite some time. And so he asked the Jewish leaders, and look at what they tell him in verses 5 and 6. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I told you last week, this is an example of predictive prophecy, right? We have a one-to-one correspondence here. The prophet predicts that a ruler is going to come and be born in Bethlehem, and here we have the fulfillment of that as a predictive prophecy, specifically promised in the Old Testament. And interestingly enough, all of the Jewish leaders interpret this passage this way. They know what this means. They clearly grasp it. And it's amazing that even though they clearly grasp this, they still react the way they do to Jesus later on in his life. Now, where is verse 6 quoted from? No doubt you have a note in your Bible that says it's quoted from the book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2. Now, when you see a quote in the New Testament from the Old Testament, you want to go and read the context in the Old Testament quote. We don't want to read this in isolation and just pick up this verse, so we want to read a little bit around it. So I'm going to show you, here's the verse in Micah 5, 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And then this is the part, we'll get to this, who, that Matthew doesn't quote. 
whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. But let's look back up at at chapter 5 and verse 1, because this, you can see at the beginning of this verse, you have the word but, and so it's contrasting whatever comes before, and look what it says in in chapter 5 of Micah and verse 1. This is a little bit vague, but I'll read it to you, and then I'll explain what's going on here. Now muster your troops, O daughter or O city of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, what is going on here? I think the first line of this is basically talking about the city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the most important city in Judah. It has the biggest and most elaborate and best buildings built in it. It's the most significant city. And in this passage, the prophet is calling for Jerusalem to muster all the troops that they can to defend themselves. Why? Because a siege is coming from a foreign power against them. And I think what this is talking about is the coming siege of the Babylonians against Jerusalem. And that's the point in time where Jerusalem is destroyed and the people are taken away into exile. Now, this last line, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, that is talking about the very last of the Davidic kings who rules from Jerusalem. His name is Zedekiah. And Zedekiah had his eyes poked out and he was carried off into exile. And that was it for the Davidic line, ruling in Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And so you have this description of the last Davidic king and of the most magnificent city in Israel, and then you get this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah. Bethlehem was this little village about five miles away from Jerusalem. And the point here is to contrast Bethlehem with Jerusalem and to contrast the coming Davidic king with Zedekiah. Jerusalem was a magnificent city. Bethlehem is not. It's a tiny little town, but Bethlehem will have a ruler of some significance come from her. And notice the last line here. I told you I'd go back to this in a second. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This ruler will be significant, and this line indicates that there's going to be something that's possibly even more than human about this ruler. But I want you to go back to Matthew. If you're in Matthew here, I want you to notice what he does quote. Because there's a part of his quote that's not found in Micah 5.2. The last line there says this, who will shepherd my people Israel? This quote is from a different passage. This is from 2 Samuel 5. Here's this passage that he's pulling this from. And this text is the time period where David is being anointed, officially installed, anointed and officially installed at Hebron by the leadership of Israel. And the people are the ones speaking here and they're describing what has happened to David in the past and they're describing what God's role for David as the king in Israel will be and should be. In time past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. That was the expectation. 
This is God's purpose for David and for any future kings that will come through his line. It was to shepherd his people. And it's clear from Micah, so put these back together, right? It's clear from Micah 5.1, when you have the last Davidic king who utterly fails, spectacular face plant, and he's carried off into exile, and the city is destroyed, and the temple is no more. It's clear from that that David's descendants did not succeed here. But Micah and Matthew, Micah predicts, and Matthew says, it is realized in the one who is coming from Bethlehem that he will actually be the shepherd that his people Israel need. He will be the promised shepherd king. And Jesus will fulfill that role. That brings us to our second role of Jesus Christ rooted in the Old Testament. He's the worshipped king. He's the promised shepherd king, and he is the worshipped king. So how will paranoid Herod react to this news from his chief priests and his scribes? Look at verses 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, at this point, if you're reading this for the first time, you don't know for sure that there's a plot to destroy the potential rival here, right? You're not aware of that yet. You are a little bit suspicious, though, of this change of heart from Herod from being deeply troubled to the point where he calls all the chief priests and scribes in, and now suddenly he's eager to go and worship this king. Something seems amiss here. Do we really think Herod is going to actually go and worship the king? No. But the Magi aren't aware of Herod's plot yet, and so they continue on their way. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, up to this point, there's good reason to believe the star had not been moving. It was a star that was clearly an anomaly, something different, but it probably had not been moving. But now it does start to move and guide them. There have been attempts over the years to try to connect this star to some sort of comet or some alignment of the planets. Who knows if that's true or not, but verse 9 is obviously something unique and obviously something supernatural here. And this experience for them brings them great delight. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, right? Like you've traveled all this way, And now the star is moving to guide you to the place where this child is. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy over the top. And what a contrast between the way they respond to this and the way Herod and the religious establishment in Jerusalem responds to this. And this, I think, is a foreshadowing of the chief priests and the scribes They were supposedly committed to God's word. They knew enough of their Old Testament. They knew it thoroughly to know what Micah predicted. We see a foreshadowing here of their true commitment. Their true commitment is obviously not to the scriptures, but to their own power and to their own position. But amazingly enough, these Gentile 
religious leaders are believing what the Old Testament has promised. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now I want you to notice a couple things here about this verse. First of all, they worship Jesus. I mean, you can take this word, it can mean that they simply bowed down and paid homage to him. And if that was the case, that's fine, but it certainly points us to the reality of who this child is. He is the God-man who deserves to be worshipped. And from the standpoint of the entire Gospel of Matthew, he is the king who needs to be worshipped. When he rises from the dead, look at what happens with his disciples when he meets them. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. The last chapter of Matthew. That's the proper response to this king. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is the gifts that they bring to Jesus. Over the years, people have tried to give a specific reason for each of these gifts. Gold represents this, frankincense this, maybe so. I don't know that we can really be clear on what each of these gifts symbolize. And sometimes I think when we try to do that, we miss what I think is the real intention of Matthew highlighting these gifts here. If you go back into the Old Testament, there is this consistent and amazing pattern of future foreign Gentile kings and rulers and people of importance in the latter days coming to Israel and offering their gifts to the nation and specifically to the future Davidic king. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. This expectation that Israel will become the center of the world because of this coming king. All over the Psalms. All over the prophets. But I want to draw your attention to one particularly clear passage. Isaiah chapter 60. And I'll read this to you up on the screen. This passage, it's a little small again. Sorry about that. But you can listen. This passage, just to put it in the context so you can understand what's happening, this passage anticipates the future restoration of Israel after exile. So Isaiah is looking ahead and saying the people will be brought back and they will be redeemed from exile and God's glory will once again be on his people because it had departed from them. Now listen as I read these verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Speaking to Israel here. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. And then this is where it gets really fun. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. 
And no doubt the Magi were bringing these gifts as an act of worship to the king. And I think Matthew mentions this here because this is a small window into the beginnings of what is happening and what is taking place. This king is going to draw people to him from all over the earth. They're going to bring their gifts to him and fall at his feet. Now after the Magi do this and after they worship and give him these gifts, They're warned and they go out in a different way. Look at verse 12. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This brings us to our last role. He's the promised shepherd king, he's the worshiped king, and he is the needed son. The needed son. Look at verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, just the beginning of verse 15, and remained there until the death of Herod. So Joseph gets guidance from God directly through an angel, and he obeys immediately. Obviously, this is necessary to keep Jesus from dying as an infant, right? To keep him safe. But there's an entire another level to explain why this happens. Look at the end of verse 15. This was to fulfill, there's our word again, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So this is the second time we've seen this word fulfill in Matthew's book. Matthew is saying the events unfolding right now in the life of Jesus are fulfilling something that happened in the Old Testament. Jesus is going into Egypt and out of Egypt, returning again, happened according to God's sovereign plan. And they fulfill the Scripture. So what passage is Matthew quoting here? Hosea 11 and verse 1 is what he's quoting. And here's what that verse says. He quotes the second half. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now you can see here, and I want to be really clear about this, this is not a prediction of the future Messiah. Okay? This is not looking forward. When is it? It's looking backwards. It's looking to a time when Israel was newly created, when the nation was young. When would that have been? God is specifically talking about the time when Israel was in bondage to Egypt at the beginning of the nation, and God called Israel out of Egypt. Now notice here, and this is the key, he calls Israel his son here. This is the idea, the pattern, that Matthew is drawing our attention to. This is the fulfillment pattern, okay? It's the idea of divine sonship. This is what he's picking up on here, and this is what he wants to draw our attention to. If you go all the way back, you may remember this from the book of Exodus, but if you go all the way back to Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23, here's what God says about Israel. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. 
So God designates the nation of Israel as his firstborn son. They're special to him. And he has a specific role for them as his representative. A task, a mission for them to accomplish. And in our study on Exodus, we saw that mission in Exodus 19. But of course, we also saw the beginnings of Israel failing to accomplish that mission. The whole golden calf thing does not set a good precedent for the nation. And the nation sins again and again. And then later in the Old Testament, we find God making a covenant specifically with David as the king of Israel. And I want you to see these words that he says about David's son Solomon and his future descendants. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David, the Davidic covenant here. And so here's what God is saying. He's committing himself to the nation of Israel and to the Davidic kings by this covenant and by his covenant love expressed through this promise and his loyalty to them. And he's saying, I will be a father to you and you will be my son. But as we already talked about, what do we find in Solomon and in the rest of the Davidic kings? We find kings who did not obey. In fact, if you go back to Hosea, look at this. This is the, the rest of that text right after our quote here. Speaking of Israel, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, another word for the nation, to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. But he says this, they shall not return to the land of Egypt but Assyria shall be their king. They're going to be sent off into exile because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. So God describes the, the sin of the Davidic king's of the nation of Israel, and then yet, God says, despite this, look at verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? And these are the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. So because of God's covenant loyalty, he's not going to give up on his people. And this compassion and this covenant loyalty and his desire to do good to his people is exactly why Jesus comes and fulfills this pattern of divine sonship. He is the needed son. He's the one that they've needed all along. And what's happening here and what Matthew is noticing is it's like Jesus is going back over the history of Israel. And he's doing the same things 
and he's doing it in the right way. And he's doing it in obedience. And he's realizing God's purposes and plans where Israel and where David's sons failed. He's the true son. He's the needed son. And a couple of chapters later in Matthew, it's not there. It's, if you could just flip forward to chapter 3 and verse 17, look what God says. At the baptism of Jesus, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the obedient kingly son that Israel needed and that you and I need as well. We're not excluded from this. We're very much involved in this. And let me quickly make application to our lives today. Here's the beauty of this, right? We're talking about Jesus being the the needed son because Israel sinned and they failed and they messed up over and over again and the kings couldn't accomplish God's purposes for them. Jesus comes, goes back over their history, succeeds where they failed, succeeds in obedience where they messed up and sinned. And here's why this matters so much for you and I. He's come as the true son and the needed representative for all of us. We need this. And so anytime that you and I in our sin, anytime we see Jesus in Scripture winning the victory, obeying, overcoming sin as he'll do in Matthew 4 at the temptation, anytime we see him succeed where others have failed, that victory counts for you if you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your victory. That's your righteousness. That's your obedience because you don't have it on your own. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn favor with God. We need the Son, the King who was promised. Martin Luther put it like this. Through faith, you are so closely united with Christ, faith alone, that you can say with confidence, Christ's righteousness, victory, life, etc. are mine. And and Christ, in turn, says, I am this sinner. That is, his sins, his death, etc. are mine. Because he clings to me and I to him. For through faith, we have been joined together into one flesh and bone. The needed son. In Galatians chapter 4, and I'll end with this, puts it like this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so unworthy of this favor. We are so unworthy of your work on our behalf. We've done nothing to earn this designation. We could never do anything to earn this. The gift of sonship because of our union with you, the gift of an inheritance of eternal life and a relationship with you is all through grace. 
pure gift to us. And so, Lord, help us this Christmas season to remember this, that, that Lord Jesus, you are the needed son, needed because of our sin, because of our iniquity, because we have failed, we've missed the mark, and we continue to do so, and yet we have you. And so when we fail, help us to turn our eyes to you in repentance. As Luther said, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. Go back to this foundation of your perfect obedience, your perfect death and resurrection on our behalf and our union with you. Help us to go back there every single day and to find our satisfaction and joy and completion there that it has been done on our behalf by a gift of grace. That's what this season is all about, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.